We have to eat to keep our energy up and to stay healthy. But what and when and how much we eat matters. The same goes for our spirit right now. And that's not just a metaphor. It's actually happening. So what would it be like to become more aware of the sources of our spiritual food? Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. Stick around for my conversation with Curtis Childs, where we reflect on what feeds us spiritually. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose shares the reaction Swedenborg got from spirits when presented with the idea of returning to Earth. Then we travel to 1772, to the final week of Swedenborg's own earthly life, and explore what his final exit from this world was like this week in history. All right. Welcome, everybody, to another week of Inside Off the Left Eye. And this past week's topic on the YouTube channel was how spiritual communion works. We dug into the subject of the Holy Supper or whether you call it communion or any of it or the Eucharist, any of its names. We have been exploring these last two weeks about sort of that the place of ritual and and really what how how the spiritual world interplays with those these physical rituals that we do and so it's been really interesting to explore and so now i've got curtis with me today hey curtis hey 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 and as we usually do we are going to respond to a the reflection question that everybody else responded to for this week and are you ready for it yeah well if everyone else responded to it then we got a bar to measure our responses against we'll see who <laughs> comes out on top this week's question is, what is a message or idea that you have felt spiritually fed by? Because in the show, we explored how spiritual nutrition is real. And Swedenborg even had dreams about being given food. And he really felt like it was spiritual food that he was being given. So I don't know. Is there a particular message or idea? And I don't know more recent or far in history or whatever that you have felt spiritually fed by. I can certainly draw a parallel between the way certain things make me feel emotionally and cognitively and then how food makes my body feel. And I've gotten more in touch mm -hmm. with how food makes my body feel as I've gotten a bit older and a little more like blood sugar variation-y. I just notice that there's a certain kind of tiredness and slowness of speech that I get, and I know I need food. And I can yeah. I can also sometimes have, yeah, I'll get crankier, and I'll get all these symptoms point to I'm I am lacking vital energy from food. I think that's such a interesting angle to go on that you know to learn to pay attention to how the food you eat actually makes you feel and then the spiritual counterpart of that is how are you know the ideas or the messages you're telling yourself how are they actually making you feel you know you could start to learn oh this really isn't good for me or whenever i eat that i know i get a stomach ache or something so it's like yeah. uh, you know this is sort of when have you felt spiritually fed by a certain idea but obviously in like a good feeling way and not you know Anyway, yeah, that's so and interesting. It, it can go both ways, and and I will off, mo most often run into, oh, I haven't eaten. It's been too long since I ate, and so mm -hmm. I'm I'm now mm -hmm. crashing because of that. 
So I will see something akin to that happen when I'm agitated and feeling almost physically distressed, but unable to really put my finger on what's going on. And then I will absorb some information that is hope inspiring. Mm -hmm. For example, if I see a really good 10 day weather forecast, since I've really gotten attuned, like the weather really can affect my mood. So if I see, oh, wow, there's like a bunch of sun and warmth coming up that will that will change the way i feel cuz suddenly i'm hopeful if i get if there's good news about the pandemic if i see some kind of trend that seems to indicate okay well things are going well i notice that that can really have this visceral change it's like oh i just ate something i just mm. ate something and now i'm energized and i can i can go again oh that's great i love yeah hearing about that and how that shows up in your life and it because I really I had no idea how I would think to respond to this question myself. Um, but hearing you reflect on it, it makes me think about for me, it often is a good dream, interestingly enough. Like I've found uh. that like sometimes I'll have, you know, I don't know if you've ever had a dream where you just wake up and you already feel like you're at a deficit because it was like so intense or so exhausting or something. And so it's like, oh, I was like working all night or something because of how your dreams were. But then the contrast of that, when I have a really vibrant, uh, you know, a kind of a dream that leaves you with a gift, so to speak, so that when I'm waking up in the morning, I feel like there was just this idea lingering in my mind or something like that really feels like, I mean, I haven't thought about it until this moment, but that kind of, you know, manna from heaven coming every day, and it doesn't happen every day at all. But so when it does happen, when I do notice that I've woken up from sleep and there's just this dream in my recent memory that has a really good, it's that same sort of hopeful, positive, like gives you encouragement for the day, even if it's not exactly directly related to whatever's you know, going on in my life, there, there's just this feeling in it that feels like this is like that recharge. This is helping me and it's going to help me get through, you know, just life, whatever it is, you know, reality. So yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but that, uh, that is a way that I definitely sort of feel spiritually fed by dreams sometimes. And just like the food that I eat isn't directly connected to the next task I have to do, but it just brings me into the space where I can do that task now. Yeah. I think like I can totally picture what you're saying. You wake up and you're energized by, I just was hanging out with goodness and <laughs> that just makes everything brighter no matter what the next thing I engage with is. Yeah, that's great. All right, well, and if you're just hearing this reflection question yourself, you can check out our community tab on the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel which I guess, I think maybe you have to go there from a desktop. I'm not sure. Anyway, some some people don't even know that this community tab exists, but you can, uh, we post the reflection question there or on, or on any of our social media channels and you can read other people's responses or, um, or watch the most recent Swedenborg live show to hear, hear a collection of people's responses to that reflection question. And so now looking forward, this coming week, we're going to have a break in our programming for the Easter holiday, and and then we're going to be back on Monday, April 5th with a brand new Chasing Swedenborg, which has been great. I love these Chasing Swedenborg thing, stints, and but it's going to be at a new time, 
And if you've been around for a long time, it'll actually feel like uh, a return to another time because the show will be posting at 8 p.m. Eastern on Monday. And so as of April, all of our content will be airing on Mondays at 8 p.m. So we're going back to our, you know, one stop, one time. You can find us on YouTube to watch the content uh, for that week. And April also is when we're going to be starting sort of a new season. We kind of do things quarterly here. And we're going to be starting a new season of content for the podcast. And you're going to get to hear more from us. So over the next quarter, we'll have 10 episodes rather than eight, which is what this last quarter has been. So if it's felt like, oh, I just want more. And I know you have because you've told us you're going to get more. And and this next season of the podcast is also going to have some new content that is inspired by the feedback that several of you gave to us through the listener survey. So just thanks so much for being an engaged listener and enjoying our content and providing that input. And so I'm super excited for what is coming up. And in the immediate future, Curtis, I hope you'll join us at the end of the show to see where Swedenborg was and what he was up to this week in history. Yep. I'm going to start doing my stretches now. Okay, good. (laughs) Great. And on my way there, I'll be stopping at the virtual desk of the NCE. And you know what? I'll just pick up Jonathan while I'm there and I'll bring him along. All right. Sounds good. See you then. All right, it is time for the NCE Spotlight, when we shine our light on the discoveries being made in the work of the NCE. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. We usually lurk in the shadows, but it's so nice to come out into the light once in a while. (laughs) Yes, come out into the light. Be bathed in the warmth. (laughs) So, what's on your mind this week? Well, I came across a really interesting passage uh, and I want to set this up a little bit, a passage in Secrets of Heaven. And it caused me to start thinking about the fact that there's kind of a theme that comes up in certain uh, movies and videos and what have you about uh, life after death, uh, which is the idea, first of all, if angels are a separately created race— which mm-hmm. has been an idea that's been around a long time, then that means that they have not had the experience of being human in this world. And then some movies get this idea that, oh, they would love to have that experience. Right. They wish they could eat the things that we eat and have the experiences that we have. And and they're actually jealous, you know, even though they're in this wonderful state, they they want to... <laughs> come here and have that full experience. And there's some shows that actually show them, like one was um, City of Angels in 1997, had the Nicolas Cage character comes down into this world, uh, right? you know, to be with the Meg Ryan character and, and all that. And, um, and, and so more recently, is... uh, Soul, the uh, new Pixar, Disney Pixar film, Soul, that's 
that has some fun plays on pre-existence, but it also, they're like, when they're in their soul, you don't feel or eat or, you know, things like that. You can talk for some reason, but yeah. <laughs> right. So it's a richer existence. There's even hints of this in the first of the Matrix trilogy um, where there's a character who just is eating this steak and just, yes, right. you know, he wants to sort of forget about the reality. He just wants to live in the Matrix because the food is so good. And the, yeah, the, the food is so is good so here. Great. <laughs> and so from what Swedenborg says... It's just not like that. Swedenborg also says that um, part of the idea uh, in Christianity, in other religions as well, that there will be a resurrection in the flesh at some point in the future. Yeah, And that people who are in the graves are asleep and then they wake up and uh, they get to live in this world again and they see various, you know, confirmation of this in scripture that Swedenborg thinks is misunderstood. Right. Uh, and Swedenborg says that the reason that idea has been popular is that uh, some people have become so external that the only kind of afterlife that they can imagine wanting is to just be back in the flesh and have another go. Right. Uh, and so talking about some ethereal, otherworldly thing, they're not that interested. But if you talk to me about, oh, I get to do this again, I'm interested. So I have a couple of passages. The, the Secrets of Heaven passage reminded me of another one that I want to start with from other planets that I just um, – is really striking in this regard. Okay, great. This Other Planets 165. I've occasionally talked with spirits I had known – when they were living in the world. I always think this is interesting that Swedenborg gets to talk to people he knew, you know, who he knew in this world, and now they've passed on, and he's right. having this exchange with them while he's still here. And he goes on, and I have asked them whether they would like to put their earthly bodies on again as they used to think would happen. <laughs> so these were people who believed in this resurrection of the flesh, you'd rise up out of the grave and so on. And so he asked them, hey, are you still interested in that? Mm -hmm. At the mere mention of the idea, they ran far into the distance. <laughs> now, I don't know how that helps in the spiritual world. <laughs> it's okay. You're not going to go back <laughs> no matter how far you run. But um, And he goes on, stunned with amazement. They were stunned with amazement that in the world they had harbored such thinking out of a blind and mindless faith. Mm. Now, that tells you something when you mention, hey, want to go back to your body? <laughs> and they run as far away from you <laughs> as they can get. But he doesn't really explain why in that particular passage. But the one that I stumbled on the other day does explain it. And oh. um, this gets a little bit into the meaning of plants. It's in a passage in Genesis 9, if memory serves, it's talking about plants uh, being for food. And he says, the symbolism of a plant as the humblest kinds of pleasure hmm. is established by the statements above. Those kinds of pleasure are called green plants because they're nothing more than worldly and physical kinds, superficial kinds of pleasure, that is. Mm -hmm. As I said, the pleasure we feel in our bodies or on the surface of existence traces its source back to increasingly deeper levels of enjoyment. The pleasures mm -hmm. felt on the surface or in one's body 
are relatively inferior. All agreeable sensation is such that the shallower it grows, the poorer it is, while the deeper it grows, the more blissful it is. So to repeat, as the external layers are unwrapped or peeled off, hmm. the elation grows sweeter and more blissful. This is sufficiently apparent from the fact that our enjoyment of the lower pleasures during our physical lives is quite paltry compared to the sensations we enjoy afterward when we enter the world of spirits. It is so inferior, in fact, that good spirits absolutely spurn the creature comforts of the body and here's the drum roll, would refuse to return to them even if given all of the pleasure in the whole world. <laughs> now, we think of this world as being full, you know, the pleasure of seeing a sunset and, and, and the pleasure of falling in love and, you know, wonderful food Ice and all cream. these kind of things. <laughs> Ice cream, very high, donuts, you know, high on the list. And so what do you mean? Just good spirits yeah. in the world of spirits who haven't even passed on to heaven yet would absolutely refuse. <laughs> you, you could add the whole thing up. No, it's a <laughs> hard pass, you know, <laughs> not at all interested. And then Swedenborg goes on to say, and I'm not quoting anymore here, but that that pleasure loses its luster when they move up to the next level into even oh. deeper delights, and that in turn pales when the Lord raises them into the third heaven, where inner qualities are alive and mutual love reigns supreme. Mm. There the happiness is indescribable. And so each one is like this levels and levels and levels of delight. So people who are just on the next level up from us have zero interest in coming back here <laughs> yes, right. and eating our steak or having any of our experiences <laughs> that we have. So it's good to be grateful while we're here in this world, but it gives you an idea why some people are ready to pass on. <laughs> you know, uh, there really are better things that await us. And there's something so much better up ahead if we're open to love because this pleasure that lies within love opens up more and more the farther away from the flesh we get. Mm. And that pleasure awaits us after we pass on. Wow. That is amazing to hear about. And it is connected because this week in history, we are going back to the moment when Swedenborg was getting to finally, uh, what was the wording you used? It was like, take off the layer, like release and... Gives me goosebumps. Yes, let that go and enter into that deeper, expansive oh. uh, pleasure. And so, yeah, I guess, will you come along now to join me and Curtis and we will explore what that was like, I mean, or really even just contemplate what that might have been like for Swedenborg to to be finally at that threshold where he gets to leave the earthly pleasures behind and enter into that eternal and expansive spiritual and heavenly delight. Would it be corny to say, that'll be a pleasure? Yeah. <laughs> All right, here we go.
All right, Curtis and Jonathan, here we are. Hey there. Dun, dun, dun. And tomorrow is the 249th anniversary of Swedenborg's death. Wow. Yeah. And I hadn't realized, but that so that means next year will be quite an anniversary, the 250th anniversary of his right. of his passing. And so after his long life and nearly three decades of this dual world citizenship, it was this week in history when his spirit was fully released from his physical body and he, you know, walked into the other room, so to speak, and entered the spiritual world for good. Oh, so tender. So sweet. It doesn't feel like he's dead. It just feels like... Because he's obviously, I do a show called Swedenborg and Life, but <laughs> it just seems like, yeah, of course, of course he's still out there somewhere. And, but we just, because the way that we can pour over the details of what he wrote and his life, and it just feels alive every time we go into it, it never struck me that, that he died. Right. <laughs> I know. And, and I love that, you know, that reference too, he said, Dying is like going from one room into another, right? I think that's in Heaven and Hell or something where he says that. And uh, and so you just wonder, what was death like for him when he finally did do the full, you know, move? Because obviously we just talked about it in the podcast, how he experienced the dying process, but he knew he wasn't really dying. So then here on March 29th in 1772, he he did it for real, you know, no more run throughs. It was the real thing for him to like enter. I I kind of feel like there's a part of his spirit that probably was just really looking forward to it. You know, <laughs> was maybe a little bit tired of the this world kind of stuff and was ready to just sort of move all the way there uh, and, you know, just be on that in that world. I don't know if you've heard this quote, but the um, uh, from a couple of years earlier, I think it was before he knew when he was going to die. And uh, someone said, well, how would you feel if you knew you were dying? He said, I would hire an orchestra. Oh, <laughs> no, I didn't know that. Oh, that's wonderful. Which would be the equivalent today of like get a, get a band or something like that. Like you're going to have a party. I wonder if he was a little tired of pushing the cart up the hill that was trying to spread the the writings. Yeah. Mm. Because I know he probably really wanted it to go, but he, as we've been exploring in this and in uh, NCE introductory material, it was a lot of work for, for not a lot of reward. And I wonder if it's almost <laughs> like, okay, well, I tried. He probably, I don't know. I, I hope he had that feeling of like, I did everything I could, you know, <laughs> like, I hope I did good, <laughs> you know, yeah. did good on this, on this plan. Um, yep. And so this week in history to give you a bit of the context and what we're going to kind of explore today is that he was staying at uh, this couple's house that were called the Shearsmiths. They, he, the uh, Richard Shearsmith, I think was a wig maker and he was staying with them in London. And so that's where he died in London in 1772 and actually, we talked in episode seven of the podcast about his this sort of race to finish and publish his work, True Christianity. And then once it was finally finished, I think he was in Amsterdam and he made this choice that rather than go to Sweden, he went to London and 
and that was just in 1771. And he goes to, you know, he's got his good friends in London and people that he's, you know, have really been through it with him through thick and thin. And and I just wonder if he had some sense of a premonition of what was kind of around the corner for him because it was just at Christmas time in 1771 that he actually had a stroke and so the shearsmiths who he's staying with cared for him um and and it was and then he was able to get visited by his really close friends who were in england um and and yeah so i don't know there might be people listening who have never heard of this event that happened so near to the end of his life where that was sort of part of you know how did swedenborg die you might wonder and it is that he had this stroke that um, laid him up for like three weeks solid, um, but he ended up recovering from it, um, but obviously not completely. And so it, it was then at the end of March that he uh, he passed away. It's interesting because this stroke that he had and this sort of period of dealing with that for three weeks actually led to some controversy down the road uh, because 10 years later, there was a rumor that started which claimed that Swedenborg had retracted everything he had written in the hours before his death. Um, And that is going to set us up for getting even more details about what was it really like when Swedenborg died. Um, And so there was this rumor that got to the ears of this man named Robert Heinmarsh, who was this is in the 1780s now when Robert Heinmersch, this friend of his, writes to him and says, this guy over here, it was actually some, I don't know exactly who it was, somebody in Sweden maybe, who made this claim that, you know, everything, Swedenborg himself said everything he wrote was whatever, hogwash or something. Um, but Heinmarsch and this other guy were, you know, proponents and passionate about what Swedenborg had written. And So Heinmarsch took it upon himself to go investigate and put the record straight. And so in 1785, Heinmarsch himself went to the shearsmiths, like to the very people who were with Swedenborg when he died, and got them to ask if they were willing, and they were, to make a sworn oath, like to create an affidavit that would be their sworn testament of what it was like being with Swedenborg for those last few months of his life. And so that the fact that there was this controversy like 10 years later actually means it was so meaningful for the historical record because it prompted Heinmarsch to go get this written account from the Shearsmiths of like, this is what it was like um, after Swedenborg had this stroke and what led to, uh, you know, to him finally dying. And so the Shearsmiths were in this part of London called Clerkenwell, and that happened to be nearby where Heinmarsh lived. And so they, um, I'm going to read a portion of this affidavit from um, who, yeah, from the Shearsmiths. And so they report that around Christmas, quote, he had a paralytic stroke, which deprived him of his speech and occasioned his lying in a lethargic state for three weeks and upwards during the whole of which time he took no sustenance whatever, except a little tea without milk and cold water occasionally, and once about two teaspoonfuls of red currant jelly, that about the expiration of three weeks from that time, from the time he was so struck, he recovered his speech and health a little, and 
uh, ate and drank toast, tea, and coffee as usual, and that from the time from that time to the time of his death, he was visited, but by a very few friends only, and uh, seemed unwilling to see company. And then they go on that um, about a fortnight or three weeks before he died, he received the sacrament in bed from the hands of a foreign clergyman, and enjoyed a sound mind, memory, and understanding to the last hour of his life, that about five o'clock on Sunday, the 29th of March, he asked uh, her, this uh, Elizabeth Shearsmith, who was sitting by his bedside, what time it was. And upon her answering him that it was about five o'clock, he replied, dat me good, me thank you, God bless you, or to that effect. And in about 10 minutes after, he heaved a gentle sigh and expired in the most tranquil manner. So this Afidavit that was, you know, sworn at the Guildhall in London by the mayor, T. Wright, in 1785, gives us all this interesting look at that time when Swedenborg had had this stroke and then recovered and and then finally um passed away. But what's so interesting, or like the added complexity to this that I think plays a part in why this may have later on been twisted to thinking about, to, you know, making this rumor about Swedenborg retracting what he had said, um, was, is this uh, other account that Heinmarsh has that's in uh, a letter that he has from an acquaintance of Swedenborg, a guy named Mr. Springer, who gave this further information to Heinmarsh. And Mr. Springer wrote that uh, a short time before his death, Baron Swedenborg had his spiritual or internal sight withdrawn from him. And after having been favored with it during so long a course of years, that he was under the greatest tribulation of mind on that account, and that he continued several days in that condition, but at length recovered his spiritual or internal sight. Um, and then he was then comforted again and became happy as before. So it might be that the stroke that Swedenborg had impacted his spiritual communication. Like, I don't know, we're sort of connecting the dots here. But what a tough trial that would be for Swedenborg. But it's interesting to like reflect on it now with you guys because um, – I feel like it feeds into this idea that people often wonder about is like, how how is the spirit connected in a person when they have sort of severe memory loss or, you know, brain damage or things things that happen that can make a person act so unlike themselves, you know, or be uh, in a different sort of a state. So anyway, that that's just, that must have been tough for Swedenborg, but it sounds like he... Uh, recovered and ended up having a very peaceful passing. Wow, riveting material. It was really interesting uh, to reflect about that time that I think we've talked about in these podcasts where early on after his spiritual awakening, there was about a month, I think, where the lights sort of went out. That's right. When he, he was, was in, on that ship in transit. Yeah. yeah, when he was traveling, and um, and uh, I know that Curtis and I did a show a few years ago where we talked about how he had said that he could even um, have believed when that shut off that this had never happened to him. He could kind of 
talk himself out of the whole thing. That's right. But what a different right. state he is after almost 30 years of this. Um, yeah, 29 years later, if if I have my math right. I've been around people who are nearing the end of their life and, uh, you know, in the, in the years prior when their memory would start to go and they would be distressed because they would know, I, why, why can't I remember these things anymore? So mm-hmm. something that you're fluent in and used to having at your command when it, when it departs from you, it can be distressing. And probably with Swedenborg's internal sight, this being this thing that he had that differentiated him from most of the human race and really set the course for the end of his life. Yeah, to be pulled out of that world for any amount of time must have been a real shock to the system. Mm. And this also account suggests that he even knew the hour because when he asked Elizabeth, she said five o'clock, it seemed like he'd been told, you know, it's going to be five o'clock. And so he doesn't seem like somebody who was raging against the, um, you know, the loss of life in this world. He says, that's good, <laughs> you know? Yeah, like, oh, good. Yeah. Good. <laughs> we got there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that uh, Elizabeth, who was at the time Elizabeth Reynolds, but who later became Mrs. Shearsmith, she, uh, it's even in this affidavit where she makes this declaration that um, that Swedenborg told her that he would die on a particular day. And to the best of her recollection, she wrote um, that that happened on the day he had foretold. And I don't think he knew that from years in advance. Right. I don't know exactly when he figured that out, but it seemed to have been months, maybe even during his his stroke or I, I, I don't know when, but, but uh, yeah. it, it, it wasn't a huge amount of time, but it still is striking that he was given that information. And I, I, I just love it because it's like Swedenborg is so human and it just gives you a sense of that where it's like we can have the strongest conviction in ourselves and belief and yet you can end up being in a state of mind or go through a certain kind of trial and it just you just sort of question, you know, you maybe question everything or doubt, or it just feels like, wait, I know I believed this before or whatever. <laughs> it's, uh, it can feel like you just can long for that, uh, you know, renewal of, of trust or whatever it is. I wonder if it, it was a, a necessary, thinking about providence and regeneration, if it was some kind of necessary last tweak on his spirit that he needed to, because he'd been in possession of this ability to have this amazing dual world communication, which is pretty rare. I mean, all the spirits he met were surprised yeah. that he could do it. I wonder, did he need to have this little experience of additional powerlessness? Uh, mm-hmm. I know I covered a, a number in News for Heaven, News from Heaven, not that long ago, where it talks about this constant cycle of. Um, sort of despair and renewal that we get pulled through that leaves us in a state where we don't want to be ours, we want to be the Lord's. And was this one last little adjustment where he needed to realize, yeah, this really isn't mine. And I I just wonder, so so close to going, if that was some kind of last bit of prep. Mm. Mm. And given that topic of the Holy Supper, it's really interesting that he he took it not long before he passed— uh, because oh. if you look in his journal of dreams, he was taking it almost monthly or was often scheduling it to, you know, he he took it a lot, not just at Easter and, and traditional times. And um, 
and says amazing things about it as as we've been talking about in the shows. And so here you see him. He's still got that commitment. Uh, it's not too late to take it again, you know? So to close it out, there's uh, part of Hindmarsh's collection of information to kind of like get everything he could uh, gathered that gives us a sense of what these final days were like for Swedenborg. Um, one one of the things he collected was this report of Thomas Hartley. And Thomas Hartley is a name that you have maybe heard because he was one of those really close friends of Swedenborg who kept, you know, close enough that he was visiting Swedenborg right up until the day that he died um, and not, uh, you know, so even in that state when he was post having a stroke. Um, and he's also the guy who who pushed Swedenborg or asked him to write his own biographical statement that he could use to defend his character if it was ever under attack. Um, and so this is Hartley retelling um, his last visit with Swedenborg. And it went through a, f- you know, friend of a friend to getting to Heinmarsh. So still, you know, you always got to hold history uh, loosely. But this is this testament um, And so supposedly Hartley, um, quote, earnestly pressed him, Swedenborg, openly to declare whether all he had written was strictly true or whether any part or parts thereof were to be accepted. You know, so Hartley was always in this ongoing dialogue with Swedenborg about like the, you know, doctrine and what's what's really true and, you know, wrapping his head around this um, really avidly with Swedenborg and He writes that Swedenborg replied, I have written nothing but the truth, as you will have it more and more confirmed hereafter all the days of your life, provided you always keep close to the Lord and faithfully serve him alone in shunning evils of all kinds as sins against him and diligently searching his sacred word, which from beginning to end bears incontestable testimony to the truth of the doctrines I have delivered to the world. So mm. that sounds like Swedenborg to me, you know, like that, right. <laughs> that's that familiar <laughs> voice that we know and, right. and such a, such an inspiring message and sweet to think of him sharing that with a close friend, Hartley, uh, so close, so close to the end, to his exit. It's kind of a look it up in yourself message, isn't it? Where he... Yes. Puts the proof actually in your experience. If you do this and you do that, you will see every day. <laughs> yes. uh, he doesn't say, believe me. He says, right. try. And because that's what he did. Like he, he, he wasn't sure what to believe as he was being led on this journey. And it was him continually putting it in, into practice in his life and, you know, keep putting one foot in front of the other and having it just be revealed before him as he went on. So, well, thanks, Curtis and Jonathan. Such a pleasure to talk to you both. Good fun. Yeah, great research today. Yeah, thanks. It's really yeah special to get to contemplate Swedenborg's final days with you guys. And so, yeah, and blessings to everyone on whatever religious holiday you are celebrating. And enjoy that time. And we'll be here with you the following week inside Off the Left Eye. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Subscribe to never miss when a new episode comes out. And help spread the word. Share an episode on social media or tell a friend who might enjoy the content. Thank you so much for listening. 
I'm Chelsea Odner, and I can't wait to explore more of life and the world with you next time we're inside Off the Left Eye. <laughs>